Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, we are not a band on the run, but we'll be discussing a band on the run. Paul McCartney and Wings, with their third studio album, Band on the Run, released in December of 1973. This album came at a pivotal time for Paul McCartney. In 1973, he was unfortunately tangled up in royalties disputes with his former Beatles bandmates. And his band Wings had gotten off to a bit of a rocky start. Their first album hadn't done well at all. The second album did a bit better. It had a number one hit on it with My Love. And he had a number one hit in 1973 with Live and Let Die from the James Bond movie of the same name. But he really had to prove himself not only commercially, but critically because his former bandmates, John Lennon and George Harrison, had had both critically and commercially successful solo careers up to this point. McCartney, not so much so. He had to prove himself, and he decided to do something a little different for this album, and he wanted to record it in an exotic location. Mm. Oof, what a what a what a exotic location to pick. <laughs> yes. Paul McCartney decided to record this album in Lagos, Nigeria. The name Lagos sounds nice. The country does not. And it ended up not being nice, but we'll get there. The trouble started beforehand, actually, when right before the band was set to depart for Lagos, drummer Denny Sewell, I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but I tried, and guitarist Henry McCullough decided to leave the group. They were not happy, and they weren't getting a lot of money because the band, for one, wasn't super successful yet, and two... McCartney was still in those legal hangups with his former Beatles bandmates. So they didn't have time to find replacements. Wings was a trio for this album. And then they went to Nigeria. I mean, imagine that. Not only is it your, going to be your third album as a band, but for McCartney, this was his fifth album outside of the, the Beatles within three years, four years. Uh, since their breakup, so who man, talk about rolling with the punches. Half the band leaves on the way to record your album, and then it's you, your wife, and and your drummer or your percussionist, or not even. It was you, your wife, and who was the third that was on the album? Denny Lane. There you and go. Uh, Denny Lane was one of the band's guitarists. He fortunately did stay on. Thank goodness. And was able to help out. He started off in the Moody Blues, actually, but was not in that band for long. But he did stay with Wings for its entire duration, which is impressive considering the rocky history of that band. So with just these three coming in, that led it to be McCartney playing bass, drums, percussion, and most of the lead guitar parts. And then everybody filling in. All the way to roadies, and we'll get to that later, but I mean, there were roadies filling in on this album. Yes, there were. Unfortunately, the least of the band's problems were the lineup when it came to Nigeria. As soon as they got there, Denny Lane recalled in this fantastic book I read in preparation for this episode, it's called Man on the Run. It's by Tom Doyle. If you have any interest in Paul McCartney, Wings, or even the Beatles, I suggest it's all about 
Paul McCartney's 1970s and how that went for him. Definitely check it out. Great book. But anyway, Denny Lane recalled seeing somebody get killed almost as soon as they got there. There was literal human shit in the streets, which is disgusting. And most devastatingly to the McCartneys, while they were going out for a stroll, a man in a car asked them if they were traveling. McCartney said yes, and they came out and pulled a gun on Paul and Linda. Linda urged him not to shoot. And Paul gave over his possessions, which included a bag with master tapes for the songs that they had worked on so far. And lyrics, like a grab bag of McCartney takes. Oh, man, that stinks so bad. Stinks so bad. Yes. So the band had to start over from scratch. McCartney actually was only able to remember three songs off of the top of his head when it came to re-recording. They all ended up on the album, of course. But other than that, he had to do it all from scratch, which was not great. But fortunately, all this trouble ended up being worthwhile for McCartney because the album was released in December of 1973 and became his biggest success yet. This album reached number one throughout the world. It was the top-selling album of 1974, in both the UK and Australia, and it was number three for the year in the US, only behind Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and John Denver's Greatest Hits. And if you look where it came out to, coming out right with Ringo's album, this was, and, and surprisingly to me, as I as I read and, and got through this, this was Paul's like almost last effort or last hurrah to really make a name for himself because like you said lennon had plastigono band and uh harrison had his his acclaim so this was this was a huge time for paul to show up and he did in nigeria one of the songs did end up getting recorded at drummer ginger baker of cream's studio because he was insulted that they wanted to use the crappy studio in Nigeria and it was crappy it was not in good condition which was fitting considering where they were I've never wanted to really visit Nigeria reading that I don't think it's gotten much better in 50 years from what I've heard not a place I want to go really not gonna lie regardless of where it is now at this time it just wasn't a very uh welcoming place for what was going down and Ginger Baker being insulted or being a kind soul regardless and begging them to record the whole album there. Again, you have to go back and we're going to, I'm at least going to touch on this throughout the album, but Paul needed to find himself. He needed to be himself. And I I really think that's one of the reasons where he said, Hey, Ginger, thank you so much, man. But we're going to, we're going to finish over here on our own. That is what happened. But after this, Paul wouldn't have to worry about, going to Nigeria to record an album again. He didn't really have to before, but he did. He solidified himself successfully post being a part of the biggest band in the world ever. And uh, he did it really successfully. And this album also was critically acclaimed. A lot of people said that it was one of the best post Beatles albums by any member. And not all of his work since has been as well regarded, but An album like this one was enough to further his legacy and cement him as one of rock's all-time great composers, musicians, and artists. Most definitely. So, 
With that being said, I would like to talk about the album cover. All right. Because for a long time, I assumed the guys on the cover were the band Wings. (laughs) Naturally, you would think that. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? That was not the case. It was a variety of people who ended up on this album cover. I'm going to actually featured on the album cover. So on the cover, we see Paul, Linda, and Denny in this group of people against the brick wall and the spotlight. And the other people were chat show hosts Michael Parkinson, film stars Christopher Lee and James Coburn, entertainer Kenny Lynch, boxer John Conte, and writer and TV wit Clement Freud. I'd never heard of any of these people before reading Man on the Run. I still don't really know who they are, but they were not members of Wings. However, they were nice enough to participate in this photo shoot, and they all went out to an Italian restaurant after shooting it. How nice. How nice. Clive Aerosmith, who is the gentleman who took this photo, uh, said this is one of four that he could actually put forth as the album cover because... And this is his take, but he's used the word substance haze. They had to stand in place for a good two minutes while he took these shots. And he said it was super difficult because everybody had been partying together uh, prior to the shoot, which I thought was awesome. Paul was one of the biggest weed enthusiasts of the 70s, and it got him in trouble at the beginning of the new decade when he took his band to Japan, as many of us know. What can you do about that, I guess? Have fun while you can. <laughs> and he ended up getting out, so... There you go. Didn't have to stay forever. But now that we have uh, dissected the background of this album, which was crazier than I ever could have imagined... Most definitely. Definitely the winner for craziest backstory covered on this podcast so far. At the very least, the craziest part to ever record an album, or craziest place to ever record an album. <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering who else recorded in Nigeria after this one, because, whoa. That's a good way to look at it. Something to check out. Yeah, awful, just awful. But with that being said, I'm now ready to dive into the album, Band on the Run, the album that got McCartney the respect he was craving from the public in general. The album begins with the title track, Band on the Run, This was an odd choice to begin the album. This was actually noted in a column about the song. Like, this was a bonkers song to open an album with. Because if you haven't heard it, it has three distinct parts. It starts off with a plaintive meditation on the fact that, hey, we're stuck in jail and this sucks. And then they start to imagine against a different backdrop, what they'll do if they get out of there. And then we go into full orchestra mode. The band is free, and they're a band on the run. This really sets the tone, in my opinion, for what McCartney was doing on this album, trying to escape where he was, knowing that he said that if we ever get out of here... Uh, was inspired by George Harrison during one of their business meetings, you know, uh, saying that they were all prisoners in some way due to how Apple was doing them in the whole nine. Uh, you can really start to feel this early in the album, 
his uh, his sense of getting away, his sense of escaping the scene that he had come from. Not necessarily in in the inspiration for the music, but just in the sincerity of getting out of that scene. Yes, he had to fully adjust to this new life, this new band. He had children, a wife, no longer a part of the biggest band of all time. So he had to do it all new. And I just think it's so cool that he created a whole story about a band in jail from his own personal crises at the time. This was the era of the singer-songwriter. We had people like James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, who were very earnest and plain spoken. They were not creating a narrative like this, or even a Paul Simon. Narratives like this were not happening a lot in the rock circles, but Paul McCartney did it and created a five-minute epic track that ended up being a signature tune for him. This was the second single from the album overall. Surprisingly, not the first, but... It was the second, and it didn't even matter. This song topped the charts in the United States in the summer of 1974. It unfortunately only stayed at the top of the charts for one week. Somehow it was blocked from the top spot by The Streak by Ray Stevens, which isn't a very good song. And it was (laughs) knocked off the top spot by Billy Don't Be a Hero. Nowhere near as good as Band on the Run. 1974 is actually considered one of the weakest years in pop history. A lot of it has to do with songs like The Streak and Billy Don't Be a Hero, not Band on the Run. (laughs) The power of popular radio, though. It'll It'll knock great music off the top. Yes, it will. It was pretty appalling to see it, but fortunately... Band on the Run has stood the test of time, which is part of why we're talking about it here today, because we weren't alive in 1974, and we know this song very well. I personally, this song is part of my bloodstream at this point. I've known it forever, because when I was a kid, my mom and dad had the Paul McCartney All the Best CD, which was a compilation of his work with Solo and Wings, And I only remember hearing the first few songs on the CD when it played. But the first song on this album was Band on the Run. And I immediately thought it was a really cool song. And I still do think it's a cool song. It's so creative. It's an odd song, but it's so memorable and catchy that it's not shocking to see that it made it the number one, even though it's not a straight ahead pop song. Not straight ahead, but knowing who we're talking about and knowing who we're listening to in the composer and entertainer that is Paul McCartney, it's that beautiful uh, orchestration and composition that we know that he excels at. You know, whenever I hear full string sections or horns or really any orchestral hit in, in any of his songs, whether it be Beatles to Wings to Solo, It just harkens back to his beauty as a composer. And what a great way to show yourself right at the beginning of this album. Yeah, most definitely. A part of me thinks this maybe should have been moved in later in the album at a different spot, but we'll get into that when we get to that point, when we discuss how we rearrange track lists, because we do that kind of often here, actually. There we go. There we go. But... As I've mentioned before on the podcast, I fortunately got to see Paul McCartney on tour this summer in my hometown of Baltimore at our Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 
of course, Band on the Run was on the set list, and it was one of the songs I was most looking forward to hearing, and I did post most of it to my Facebook Live. I have a video of it. You can hear me singing more clearly than you can Paul McCartney, for better (laughs) or for worse, but... It's me. One of my supervisors came up to me and said, I heard a video of you singing at the concert. I was like, yep, that was me. That was you. But how can you not sing the band on the run? Of course, I knew every single word. I did not care. Super iconic. Yeah. What a banger. 10 out of 10. Agreed. The number ones column that I love so much only gave it 7 out of 10. I disagree, but... Still a nicer score than a lot of other, well, one hits from 1974 and other McCartney songs, for that matter. But here's the issue. How do you follow Band on the Run? Very good question. Pretty hard to do, but they managed to do so pretty admirably with the album's first single, Jet. So Paul and Linda had a Labrador retriever named Jet, and it was widely believed that that was where the song's title came from. But many years later, Paul McCartney said it was the name of a pony he had owned. However, of course, the lyrics don't really have much to do with a pony or a dog. He didn't even really remember what it was about. And honestly, the lyrics to this song don't make a lot of sense. But guess what? It doesn't matter because this song is awesome and it rocks. Definitely rocks. This for me is the perfect blending of the Wings mentality and sound and the Beatles sounds. Uh, even the late drums in the in this or the driving late drums in this track uh, go back to, to a Ringo beat. This is for me where he finally breaks from the Beatles as far as his musicianship and and as far as Wings goes. And and this is that quintessential track that that shows it. Yeah, interestingly, so this was the second song on the All the Best CD. And I loved this one immediately as a kid. It was my favorite. But I knew these songs before I knew any Beatles songs, which is crazy to think about. But I was really young when I heard these songs but i always loved the jet i just thought what a cool song it's actually gotten quite a few comparisons to david bowie really yeah which i never really thought of i guess i can kind of see where they're going with it but to me it just sounds like mccartney yeah i have to agree you have to agree there it's it drives more than bowie drives and it's it's way more melodic in, in my opinion. I don't know if I can go with that. Yeah, bit of an odd comparison in my opinion, but it has been made, thought I would mention it. I did look up the set list for the tour before I went, and Jet was not initially on it, and I was like, seriously, I really wanted to hear Jet, but fortunately, it was added, and I got to hear it, which was awesome. There you and go. another interesting tidbit about it, was that Paul McCartney had Richard and Karen Carpenter of a duo called the Carpenters come up to him and say, we really love Jet. And he was shocked by this, like, what? But I have to say this, Paul, who doesn't like Jet? How can you not like Jet? I mean, the Carpenters certainly didn't make this kind of music, but that doesn't mean they couldn't enjoy it. I mean... (laughs) Of course, of course. Come on. 
And heck, Paul had nice things to say about the Carpenters, too. He said Karen Carpenter had the best female voice he ever heard. So it's a beautiful voice. Yes, it was one tragically lost way too early, but we're not talking about the Carpenters, but another point for them because they liked Jet. I guess that means they had good taste because (laughs) Jet is awesome. And I forgot to mention this. Even though contentions between ex-Beatles were not the best, when asked, John Lennon admitted that Band on the Run was a great song and a great album. Uh, I'll touch it more as we go through, but I could see him and Lennon penning this album together. I just could. In some points. Not in every point, because you get that wing sound, but there's definitely points in here where even I mean, you spend so much time creating with some with another person that they start to blend into you. And without even realizing it, you're still doing that sound, you know, that definitely happens on one track in particular. Yeah. We will get to that one, but we're not there yet. But the next song on the album has a similar title to a classic Beatles tune. Track number three is Bluebird. Kind of easy to compare it to Blackbird from the White Album, but this is a very different song than that. This is much more happy for one. Blackbird's a pretty dark song. This is a light and breezy, very acoustic-based I feel like very just summer pop. I feel like this would have been a cool song of the summer kind of single. Of course, the song of the summer ended up being banned on the run. And you weren't not going to release that as a single. You would have had to be an idiot to do so. But I could have seen this being a single. And this song was actually written a bit before the album was released. And it was written during a vacation in Jamaica. And it ended up being recorded at AIR Studios in London. But the percussionist on the song, Remy Kabaka, was from Lagos. However, he was in London when the song was recorded. There was also a sax solo from Howie Casey, and it's a pretty cool sax solo. This one definitely has some pretty cool world music elements. I do like this song, however, I have to say... It is a bit of a come down from the first two. Nobody wants to follow that one-two punch. No song could really. I think that was part of the issue. And that's part of the sequencing issue here. I do feel like this was a bit too much of a change from Jet. But maybe they needed to do that to show that, hey, we're versatile here and we can do different things. But this is a really nice one. What do you think? This is a great one. This is one I grew up on. This is one we sung in the house almost daily. In my opinion, it's a secret love song. Uh, I think McCartney even came out and said it was a love song between him and a bluebird. Regardless, such a beautiful track. Like you said, could be a single, could be a beautiful summer pop song. It is only, again, touching on what you said, just gets better and better with all the layers of musicians and world sounds that are on uh, inside of it. Definitely... A come down from Jet, but a needed come down. You'd, maybe you didn't need to pull the brakes that hard, but a beautiful sound regardless. So you don't really necessarily get a full on uh, whiplash from from the pull of the brakes. You're absolutely correct about that. I do wish this album could have had more singles, but of course uh, they went ahead and made Junior's Farm a single not long after Band on the Run, and then 
They recorded the follow-up album, but it would have been cool to see if this album ended up having more singles. In fact, McCartney didn't want to release any singles from the album initially because the Beatles had had successful albums with no singles, namely Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the White Album. However, VP man Al Corey said, no, you should release singles. And that ended up being smart because, well, the first two songs on the album were top 10 hits. I forgot to mention Jet was a number seven hit in the U.S. and U.K. Plus, you're not the Beatles, so get your sound out there. They're not going to just buy albums because you're Paul McCartney and Wings. In fact, you're from what I was reading, he's feeling that hate at that point where people are like, eh, you know, Paul, whatever, whatever. You got to get those singles out there. Yes. And uh, they did make this album and help it go to the top of the charts, which was a wonderful thing. But fortunately, there are a lot of good songs to choose from here, even if some of them are a bit different. But Bluebird, I think, could have been a hit, possibly. But I guess we will never know. Never know. Track number four was actually a single in certain parts of the world, continental Europe and Australia, but not the U.S. or U.K., Mrs. Vanderbilt, or Vanderbilt, I should say. This one, when I first listened, I thought, eh, this is kind of filler, but it is an earworm. I'm always singing to myself that ho, hey ho, refrain, it sticks like candy. I do like the lyrics to this song. I feel like they're quite tongue-in-cheek, which I always enjoy. What do you think of this one? I love this one. Um, this one even inspired a big boy um, from Outkast, uh, Big Boy, in 2008. Him and a couple artists sat down on this track, which it's almost a literal interpretation with a track put on top of it. But it's, like you said, a perfect earworm, a perfect, it's going to get in there and live uh, inside your brain rent free i was surprised that they never played this song live until 2008 um, because this seemed like such a great live song to me you know almost like a sing-along especially with that simple refrain uh, a great song all in all something that keeps the album itself driving and keeps the sm- the softer sound in the middle of the first side but it, it keeps it driving again. Like I said, it just goes and goes. And the oh, hey, oh, you can't, you can't get that out of your head. No, and uh, turns out people in the Netherlands and New Zealand uh, couldn't get it out of their head. This was a top 10 hit in both of those countries. So Mrs. Vanderbilt did do well where it needed to. And it was on a big enough album that many people heard it. After all, triple platinum in the U.S. There you go. Yes, but Mrs. Vanderbilt, another solid tune on this album. And now we are at the end of side one with track five, Let Me Roll It. I'll let you start on this one because you alluded to it a bit earlier. I did. I did indeed. This is a song where John lives in Paul and Paul lives in John. There's no way you can sit down and listen to this song without immediately feeling just the vibe of those two playing together. Uh, I know even though McCartney said later on, like, oh, I guess I sort of did sing like or sing that like John. That's the reality of that symbiotic relationship that they ended up having. I love this song. I thought it's such a great song for an ender on this the first side. This is the ender for the first side, right? It Let is, me roll it. Yes. Yeah. But it has that 
big old deep breath of just hearing those two together, even if they're not together on, on this track. I, I love this song. It reminds me of Beatles. It reminds me of why I love McCartney as a composer. And it, it, it gives me a, a big, like I said, sigh of relief and a big deep breath for the end of this side. Yeah, I have to say, when listening to this song, the vocals specifically reminded me of John on Mind Games. That song in particular really... Just the vocals sounded a lot like Mind Games, but the song doesn't completely. The guitar is quite a bit more driving than that track, but this one works real well for me. It's a solid tune. It's not the greatest lyrically, but it really is about the sound. He did do this one at the concert, and my mom said that was one we probably could have done without. And maybe she's right, because McCartney has so many songs to choose from whether it be with Beatles solo or with Wings. However, this is a pretty fun tune for him to play live, I would imagine. That's probably why he's continued to include it in his set list. And maybe it's partially an implicit tribute to John. Even without it being a tribute to him as a composer, again, not a lot of people can pull up, pull off that offbeat rhythm, you know, that immediately turns the ear of the uh of the listener who's just you know passing by but is ultimately a serious hook uh and not a lot of people can do that and this song sits on that offbeat the whole entire time yes and interestingly an article on ultimate classic rock which i think is a cool website that listed the top 10 wings songs included let me roll it and they noted that Lennon used this track for his 1974 instrumental Beef Jerky, which was on his album release that year, and was the B-side to his number one hit that year, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Yep, indeed. The symbiotic relationship. Most definitely. Those two men will always be connected to each other in life and in death, for better or for worse. Mostly for better, though. (laughs) I think mostly for better. Mostly. But the ultimate question is, John or Paul, what is your answer? (laughs) Don't you ever put me in a spot like that. John or Paul, Christ almighty. Uh, ah, Mm, Damn, Charlie, you hurt me here. John (laughs) or Paul, John or Paul. I go Paul. Same here. My family's Paul. Paul. I, I love Paul. John. I know you heard me say that, but uh, yeah, on the spot, gun to my head, I go Paul. I'm Paul all the way. I have no shame in admitting that. This album solidifies the case for him, I think. I have a happier spirit, I think, that that resonates in in the Paul realm, in the McCartney realm. So I'm with you on that, Paul. Speaking of happy spirits, those begin the second side of this album, with Mamunia, this song was written in Marrakesh, Morocco, and it was inspired by a hotel called Mamunia. It was spelled a bit differently. This is a nice song to listen to. The melody's pretty simple. You can definitely hear the African influence on it. I have an issue with the lyrics to this song. I feel like he's pretty much telling you to ignore your problems, kind of similar to don't worry, be happy. I think it has that kind of issue. And uh, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's healthy. And I really don't think Paul has been saying Mamunia to everything in his life. 
Highly doubt when he heard his boy John got killed, he said, Mamunia. Well, yeah, no, but also speaking to it being written in a vacation sense, in a hotel sense, while they were in, in his words, an exotic locale, you can see, you know, that thought process of at least for the next couple of days, let's just let it all go. You know, let's let's not worry about the rest of everything that's going on while we enjoy our exotic location. I can see that, but yeah, this isn't one of my top favorites on this album. It's a nice song to listen to. I just find problems with the lyrics and the message it's trying to send. That's just me. No, you're good. I can see exactly where you're on that. You know, more of a, I don't know, You when you stay at a hotel and you get that safety vibe, I think that's more where it's coming from. But I can see where, yeah. where you could see that. And I'm sure Morocco was much nicer than Nigeria. So (laughs) not hard to be nicer than Nigeria. But after Mamunia, we have no words. This was actually the first song that Denny Lane co-wrote with Wings. And it's about unrequited love, a subject all of us can relate to. I know I certainly can. Weakest on the album for me. It's a bit forgettable. Paul and... Lane sing it together with Linda, but this one doesn't really make much of an impression on me. Kind of a throwaway. I'm, I'm with you there. This is that one I was talking about, Rhodey singing on the track. Two of the Rhodeys sang backing vocals on this, even though their parts are buried in the mix. But it this was like, all hands on deck, let's make this work. This is the first one they recorded there. And unfortunately, I feel like it shows. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a bit of a throwaway track. I feel like this would have been better off not on the album, maybe as a B-side for one of the singles if they had to put it out there. Yeah, and and this was, you know, people were like, well, McCartney's got to put a love song on there. You know, he's got to put a quote-unquote silly little love song somewhere. And this, I guess, is as close as you get to it. But again, uh, not my favorite on the album. Fortunately, I think the next track is quite a bit more interesting. Picasso's last words, Drink to Me. This song was inspired by Dustin Hoffman. Surprising to think about. They were at a dinner party. And Hoffman said that McCartney couldn't write a song about anything. But McCartney knew he could. Hoffman pulled out a magazine with an article about the death of artist Pablo Picasso, and it featured his famous last words, drink to me, drink to my health, you know I can't drink anymore. And McCartney wrote a song on the spot and proved Dustin Hoffman wrong, which I love to hear because Dustin Hoffman, great actor. I love Rain Man. He's an asshole. Look it up. <laughs> it's so crazy. I, you, you say dinner party. I had read the story a little bit different and they made it seem like he had snuck onto the scene of Papillon where uh, it was Hoffman and McQueen together and they were just partying. And then Hoffman was like, ain't no way you can write a song about nothing. Here's a magazine. <laughs> and then Paul just whipped it out and said, all right, let's go. I was under the impression the party was after he visited them on the set. I love it. Regardless. Sitting there in front of somebody who says you can't write a song about nothing, then you crush it. And on top of that, put it on your album. <laughs> you know? And what, is, what great last words, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes the song. How can you not make a song out of it? That's iconic, actually. It's a perfect drinking song. <laughs> 
Yes, it is. And it also kind of sounds like something you'd hear in an Italian restaurant. Agreed. Agreed. Which is perfect. Uh, This isn't the top song on the album for me, but I have to appreciate its originality. I do think the samples of earlier songs on the album are a bit misplaced here. Yeah, it it almost reminded me of a number nine, you know, where there's a lot of different thoughts and processes going on. This is the one they ended up recording on Ginger Baker's or at Ginger Baker's spot. Yes. Um, And I guess he sits in on some kind of percussion, but this definitely had a lot of thoughts going into it. Most definitely. I'll take it over Revolution 9 any day, though. I'm going (laughs) to say that right now. Of course, of course. (laughs) Not even a contest for me. No, no, just in the, uh, I'll use the word, in the schizophrenic samples towards the end. I know what you mean. That's the points against the song, but other than that, I enjoy it. Most definitely. And then we close the album with 1985. This was another song I heard at the concert. The only other song off this album we heard. Really? Yep. And it was pretty cool. He actually had a video of British troops marching set to it, which it actually fit the song really well. Do you remember where it was in the uh, set list? It was pretty early on. It was one of the first songs he did. And I remember he introduced it as a wing song. He said, this is a wing song. And I was behind these horrible people at the concert, and one of them said, none of us want to hear Wings songs. They were incredibly disrespectful people, (laughs) but I don't want to talk about them too much because I'm going to get fired up. I just don't understand why he would pay good money for a concert and talk the whole time. Some people will. What did you think about this track? I really like it. At first, I thought the lyrics were really lacking, but This is another earworm. Always got stuck in my head. That piano line is amazing. One of the best piano lines I have ever heard. And uh, it's just an epic song. I think it's a great closer to the album. I don't think this album could have closed any better. Epic is a beautiful word to use for this this track. um, With the risk of saying that it is a little day in the life-esque. I say that I, I expect nothing more from uh, from Sir Paul, you know, as an entertainer and a composer. Again, I say it, but this is a clinic, ladies and gentlemen, on how you close an album. <laughs> this is it, because not only have you taken us through a giant crescendo, you know, and, and crushed on such a beautiful high note, but then you take and tease a fade off of the start of the album which makes it this, you know, this loop that never stops. It This was such a great track for the end of this album. I completely agree. And it was actually in America, the B-side for Band on the Run, the single, which I think is awesome too. Oh, get out of here. That's a perfect single right there. You can just never stop it. You just keep flipping it over and over again. Oh. I would have worn that out if I had that back in the day. If I didn't have streaming, that just would have gotten worn the hell out. That's real. Yes, for sure. That ends the standard and at the time, most countries edition of the album. But in the U.S., things were a little different because Al Corey, VP of promotion at Capitol Records, was telling Paul, 
you need to include singles on the album, he suggested that he include his October single, Helen Wheels, on the album. It was initially placed in between No Words and Picasso's Last Words, Drink to Me. Bit of an odd spot, Hmm. I think. I didn't know that. That is an odd spot. But on future releases, it was included as a bonus track on the album. This song was a hit. It made it the number 10 in the U.S. and 12 in the U.K., but it hasn't remained one of McCartney's most well-known songs at all. He didn't do it at the concert. I don't know if he's done it in a long, long time, honestly. This has not remained one of his top tunes. Uh, But it's a nice little rocker. It was nicknamed after Paul and Linda's Land Rover that they called Hell on Wheels. Uh, And it's a song about a car that's really... All I can say about it, it's a cute song. I don't really think it fits in that well with the rest of the album at all. Yeah, I agree with you there. As far as the album goes, it doesn't. As far as a McCartney fun narration tune of driving down from, you know, uh, what is it? The Shetland Islands all the way down to his London farm, or maybe it's the opposite of that. But regardless, it's, it's a narrative happy song about a road trip and a beautiful car that they loved. It'll get you there, but it's nothing that I think belonged on the album. No, not at all. I'm sure this was partially done to boost sales of the album because it would be known, oh, well, at least there's one top 10 hit on the album when it came to the American release, but it didn't need it. Jet and Band on the Run were even bigger hits than this one. So they didn't actually need it, but I can see why there was some thinking there, especially because Wings were still establishing themselves as pop hit makers. Wasn't yeah. known if that would continue at the time, I guess. No, if, if this would have been the album afterwards, they would have never said that. But this was a scary album. They, they didn't know if McCartney was going to set off into the mainstream at this point especially since one of his number one hits was admittedly a soundtrack song, an awesome soundtrack song, but still not featured on an album. So they had to consider that, I guess. And uh, also featured on reissues of the album was the B-side to Helen Wheel's Country Dreamer. It was actually recorded for the previous album, Red Rose Speedway. It's pretty clearly about Paul and Linda's life on their farm. And I like that they included that into their music because that was a big aspect of their life. I think this is a nice song. It definitely wouldn't have fit on the album. It's a good thing it was a B-side, but I think it's neat that Paul McCartney actually did a country song. Yeah, this reminded me of young McCartney, happy, jovial. Um, It actually reminded me a little bit of when I'm 64 and it's, it's bounciness. But again, I couldn't see it on the album. It's a great McCartney song. It's fun. It reminds me, again, I I go back to it, early McCartney. Uh, It it was a cool listen. Yes. And uh, there we have Band on the Run. What's your grade for this one? Drum roll. I give this album an A. The real, it was the real escape of McCartney for me from the Beatles. And uh, it's full of ideas that will shape wings and ultimately pop music going forward with a little bit, in my opinion, of homage to his roots and maybe even a swan song-esque goodbye to the Beatle era. I'm going to go with A-. minus. There are a couple of weaker songs, specifically six and seven, don't really do a lot for me. 
And uh, though I do like a lot of this album, I think the first two songs really help its stature a lot as a great album. And they're amazing songs. Nothing else can quite live up to them, in my opinion. And that's my real issue, I guess you could say. Not that I have a problem with this album. I think it's awesome. But I do think that having two songs like that elevates an album. It's kind of the same case with The Rolling Stones and Let It Bleed. A good album, certainly, but you have Gimme Shelter and you can't always get what you want. Of course, it's automatically going to be one of the best albums ever. But nothing else can live up to that. And I think that's uh, my issue here. And here's how I actually would have restructured it, at least to an extent. I would have made Jet the opening track on the album and had Band on the Run open up side two. It makes total sense. Jet is a perfect opener. It would it would be a perfect vessel for an album to go, especially spreading, you know, no pun intended, spreading your wings as a band. Uh, this was your song. As I said before, this is the jet sound for I'm sorry, the wing sound for me. Um, that, that's that's a good take. Yeah. And I would have had Let Me Roll it follow Jet. I think that would have worked a bit better than having it follow Mrs. Vanderbilt. And then I would have had Vanderbilt as track free. Then Bluebird and Mamunia to close outside one, open with Band on the Run. And then we would go into uh, No Words, uh, Picasso's Last Words, and 1985. You can't change the closing track. That's an impossible task. That can't be done. That's ever, a really, ever. No, but that's a really cool way to look at this album. I, I'm going to listen to it like that. That's a neat one. I, oh. I'm t- I, I totally am with you on that. Yep, but... There we have Band on the Run, a really awesome, iconic album, beloved to this day, still widely considered McCartney's best post-Beatles work. I can certainly see why. And it made Wings major players in 70s music, which uh, definitely helped McCartney out, certainly. Yeah, they they needed this. this. This was make it or break it, and they made it. Yes, they did. They never quite got to the success of this album again. They had others that did well, but I don't think any albums at least continued to sell over the years like this one certainly has. And uh, this is not only the end of Band on the Run, this is the end of our deep dive into the 70s that we did this whole month. It was a lot of uh, fun. But next month, we are going to be diving into the 1980s, which is my favorite music decade. So I'm super excited for that because it's a longer month. We'll get to do five episodes, which means we'll have one a poll as usual, but we'll each get to pick two albums, which is really fun and uh, run the gamut of what we love about the 80s. And uh, to start off with next week, we will be discussing Stevie Nicks' Rock a Little from 1985. I am super excited to do this one. It wasn't her most successful solo album, but it is an interesting time in her career and an awesome album, in my opinion. Not everyone loves it, but I'm going to make a case for it. And I can't wait to dive into that one. Got to be a good one. Here we come, 80s. Yes. But while you're waiting for us to dive into the 80s, Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. We're available on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, and a couple other platforms. You can also give us listener support for either a dollar, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. 
that would also be appreciated. And also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Turntables and Tea Podcast, where you can get updates on the latest episodes and whatever we will be discussing that week. There it is. Now it's on to the 80s. Yes, I can't wait for it. And I hope a lot of you are going to enjoy. uh, I hope all the listeners out there are going to enjoy it, too. I think they will. And I think the discussions will get a bit more in-depth as we move into the MTV era, because now we have music videos to discuss. So that'll be pretty cool, I think. Here we go. Into a new era. Can't wait to go off into the 80s. And in the meantime... Go be a band on the run and take a break until we're back next week. Adios. Peace.